Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Hilary Bishop, a PhD student with the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool. Her current research is concentrated within the Diocese of Cork and Ross in County Cork, and she is presently in the second year of her studies. Her paper is entitled Mass Rocks, Penal Law Necessity or Reformation Possibility. Within the Archaeological Survey of Ireland, mass rocks are classified as follows. A rock or earth fast boulder used as an altar, or a stone-built altar used when mass was being celebrated during penal times. Though there are some examples which appear to have been used during the Cromwellian period. Some of these rocks or boulders may bear an inscribed cross. Whilst there appears to be a general consensus that mass rocks were used during the penal era and possibly the Cromwellian period, this paper will argue that some mass rock sites may have been in existence as early as Reformation times. As Elliot has pointed out, the impact of the penal laws was short-lived and the worst was over by 1730. And since the 1990s, most historians have rejected the traditional penal paradigm with its subtext of a heroic but silenced Catholic nation. But the penal days are more than a story of survival through a period of savage repression. And whilst modern historical sources may document this period as less savage than its portrayal in national legend, it was nevertheless, as Courage advocates, still a repression. And whilst it is argued that religious practice was tolerated in most years and in most districts, many Catholic churches were destroyed or put to use by the Protestant faith during the period following the Battle of the Boyne. In the city of Cork alone, for much of the summer of 1714, the chapels remained firmly closed. By 1731, Catholic mass houses had begun to penetrate the rural Irish landscape, and the report on popery of that year indicates a considerable supply of thatched mass houses, areas such as South Tipperary being of note. This report to the House of Lords Committee concluded that the Catholic Church in Ireland now possessed a high level of ecclesiastical organisation and that the number of secular and regular clergy was steadily increasing, with a bishop appointed to most dioceses. The Irish countryside is still littered with the mass rocks that were used throughout this penal era and they are still considered to be special sacred places. Despite the repeal of the penal laws and subsequent Catholic emancipation, enabling Catholics to worship publicly once more, the spread of church building with adequate accommodation was slow. The purpose of this paper is to show that whilst there is strong evidence from this later penal era to support the use of mass rocks during this time, there is also evidence that some may date Uh, to a much earlier period, that of the Reformation. When this PhD research began two years ago, County Cork contained a total of 93 mass rock sites recorded and verified on the archaeological record. As can be seen on the slide, this number is far greater than in any other county and therefore presented an obvious (coughs) area for study. 
County Cork consists of the Diocese of Cork, Ross and Cloyne, and in order to carry out an in-depth study, the Diocese of Cork and Ross was chosen. This too was an obvious choice because nearly 75% of the recorded monuments within this lie within this diocese, although further research has revealed that there are potentially an additional 87 sites within this diocese that are not listed in the archaeological record. This brings the total number of sites within the area of study to 156, but there are additional sites that are still coming to light. So far, just over half the number of sites recorded, or the equivalent of almost one quarter of the possible sites, have been visited and recorded. And I'm currently in the stages of um, analysing the data. And this has revealed some surprising concentrations and some surprising absences. The actual locations of mass rocks are also equally intriguing since few of them conform to the mythical secluded upland sanctuaries that has been depicted in early to mid-20th century history textbooks and more recently on Republican murals. In order to assess the use of mass rock sites, it's logical to start with the penal era between the 1690s and 1750s and work backwards. Now, as I've already said, in acknowledgement of the use of mass rocks during this, this period, we only need to return to the 1731 report on the state of popery. That has several mentions of massing new fields or moving altars. And what of the Cromwellian period? If we look back to the essential elements of the Cromwellian program <coughs> of action between 1652 and 1659 we will see that the period brought about the formation of a new administrative structure for Ireland, the implementation of a drastic plantation scheme in addition to the pursuit of a radical religious policy. Elliot advocates that during the first years of Cromwellian rule, the main difference was that for the first time the law could not be evaded. Clerics were more likely to be exiled, and she argues that whilst the country was not entirely cleared of priests, their numbers were greatly reduced, and the reorganisation of the Catholic Church that had taken place in previous decades collapsed. Cromwell's religious reform programme was two-pronged. First was the curbing of the activities of the existing Catholic clergy. The second was to promote a Protestant evangelical effort. Canny reports that the effective erosion of the position of Catholic landowners in Ireland dealt a weighty blow to the existing Catholic church fabric because most of the secular clergy outside the towns in the years before 1641 had enjoyed the patronage of landowners and often carried out their functions within the shelter of their houses, end quote. However, their political and military affairs now left them an obvious target for attack and Professor Corrish has estimated that up to 100 priests were in fact killed and more than 1,000 exiled during the Commonwealth period. Nicholas French, the Bishop of Ferns, reported that the state of religion in Ireland under the Cromwellian regime, which he claimed bluntly had conspired to exile faith and to wipe out the religion in Ireland and in England. Rivers have been flooded with human blood, mountain tops covered with dead bodies, there is no place that is not a theatre of horrors. McHugh highlights the attention that French drew to the condition of the clergy. 
relating how they had become a hunted group under the Commonwealth administration. We are run from the streets, from our very homes, from prayer we are dragged. They seek us in the open fields, in forests and mountains. We are found and taken to prison, into exile and into torture. Cork, in addition to many other urban settlements, bore the brunt of Cromwell's actions. McCarthy records that in 1649, Wexford was stormed by Cromwell and the defenders put to the sword. The city of Waterford, besieged by Cromwellian forces. The city of Galway, falling to the Cromwellians in 1652, following a siege lasting nine months. Its Catholic merchant families expelled by 1655. By the early 1660s, Clonmel and Kilkenny had also been stripped of their Catholic majorities. In 1680, Piers Cray, Bishop of Cork and Cloyne, took refuge with his brother near Killigan, but was discovered and arrested and imprisoned. His fate was better than that of the Bishop of Ross, who in 1650 was hung on a pear tree in McCroom. Given the records of Cromwell's persecution of the Catholic clergy, hanging trees were often associated with the murder of priests or clerics. Many crosses on public roads or crucifixes in private houses or churches were defaced, broken or burnt by his soldiers. In this example, we can see two angel figures at St. Nicholas's Church in Galway, which are believed to have been defaced during this period. Little wonder, then, that the people celebrated Mass in secret, in out-of-the-way places, hidden from the prying eyes of the authorities. Though Charles was restored in 1660, the Cromwellian regime in Ireland persisted and the persecution of the Catholic clergy continued almost as actively as before. And according to a letter written by three Irish Franciscans to the head of their order in 1656, the Cromwellian regime had surpassed that of Queen Elizabeth in cruelty. But Elizabeth's reign was a cruel one nevertheless, and as Dudley Edwards reminds us, it was under the Tudors that most of the relevant legislation of the first period of the penal laws was passed. The laws being continuous and uninterrupted, even during the reign of Mary Tudor, when Catholicism was re-established. In a letter from the Bishop of Derry to the Pope, in 1539, the bishop alerts his holiness to the activities of the King of England's deputy and his adherents. The burning of houses, destroying of churches and the ravishing of women. He laments that nearly all of Ireland had been subdued by them and compelled to conform to their laws. Dudley Edwards tells us that the power of the crown increased. The same policy was pursued throughout the rest of the country and ecclesiastical property was deemed to be that of the church established by law. He advises that the clergy were regarded as the clergy of the established church, being replaced whenever their obedience was refused. Thus, church property passed into the hands of the state church. In 1540, both Abbey Mahon and Ross Priory in Cork were suppressed, although it was not until much later that most of the small parish churches were changed over to the new religion. St. Finbar's too was taken over during the Reformation. Whilst the favoured policy was generally one of moderation, as advocated by the 1563 commissioners, it is clear that this policy did not extend to the clergy, the mass men, the popish priests and friars. They were subject to the terrors of the law, 
Perhaps this reference to the Catholic Mass is our first indication that mass rock sites were used within this period. The Papal Commission of 1564 is also helpful in this respect, advising that portable altars might be used outside the churches for the celebration of Mass, while in fear of the heretics, but no longer. This no doubt established new places of worship because the old places of worship were now used for the services of the established church. The year 1578 definitely ushered in a more active and repressive religious policy, with assizes to be held in the south of the country, the promotion of executions and a policy to terrorise the country into subjection. Indeed, a venerated shrine was was destroyed during this period in County Cork in zeal for the Reformation. O'Fergal reports that in County Kilkenny too, the church had little opportunity for reorganisation and reform during the difficult days of Elizabeth's reign. A hostile climate prevailed, allowing little scope to the new seminary priests returning from the continent. In addition, there was no resident bishop for over half a century, apart from a brief interlude of a few months, and it is likely to have been a similar picture in Cork. On the 13th of June 1582, Sir Henry Wallop was appointed Treasurer of War for Ireland and gave notoriety for hanging three friars at Ennis Corthy. In 1588, the town of Abilish was the scene of a martyrdom when some Franciscan priests were flogged, put to the rack and finally hung, drawn and quartered. There can be little doubt with such examples that the Tudor period in Ireland during the reign of Elizabeth, and indeed later, was both cruel and ruthless, denying the Catholics of their churches and raging war on the clergy. In the absence of places of worship, where else could Mass have been celebrated other than in secret, in the open air at secluded Mass rock sites, or in the privacy of homes? The use of Mass rock sites can be identified through a study of both the Synod of 1614 of Kilkenny and the Synod of the Province of Armagh, decreed in February the same year. If we first examine the Synod of Kilkenny, we are told that Sunday Mass was celebrated in private houses, generally the houses of the landed gentry or merchants, in barns or outhouses, and in the open air. This is because there were few chapels available to the Catholic congregation, because all pre-Reformation churches had been taken over by the established church. O'Fergal O'Fergal points out that the celebration of Mass in the open air worried the Synod, who expressed concern for the dignified celebration of the Eucharist, and therefore required a canopy to be placed over the altar. And in addition, priests were instructed to have silver and not pewter ware. Clearly echoing the concerns of the Synod of Kilkenny is the Synod of the province of Armagh. Let nobody dare to celebrate Mass in any place that is not above reproach, that is smoky or fetid, that contains the stalls of animals or is otherwise dirty, nor in places that are too dark and without enough light, but not in the open unless the number of the congregation demands it or persecution compels it. Then, care must be taken that the altar is safe from wind and rain, from any dirt that is liable to fall fall on it. Moreover, it must be secure, firm, large enough, not tilting, unsteady or too narrow. It is clear from the Papal Commission of 1564 that mass Mass was celebrated at portable altars outside churches, 
And given the fact that their use is recommended while in fear of heretics no longer, or when persecution compel it, it is indicative that they were perhaps being used more regularly than the Papal Commission would perhaps have liked. This suggestion is further supported with the 1640 synods at both Kilkenny and Omar, with specific instructions that these portable altars should be covered and mass celebrated only in places that were above reproach. With no specific details, how are we to know which mass rock sites belong to the Reformation and which mass rock sites belong to the later period? Well, there appear to be clear patterns emerging in the research data recorded so far. Whilst early and mid-20th century history textbooks and more recently Republican murals would have us believe that mass rocks are found in mythical secluded upland sanctuaries, actually only 14% of the sites that were researched were in this type of locality. More generally, mass rock sites are to be found in fields or wooded glens with 62% of all sites situated near water. Some sites are located adjacent to holy wells, whilst others make use of existing landscape features, such as a cliff face or a boulder. Some are man-made, and some reuse existing sacred places and monuments, and also that appears to be another recurrent characteristic. Mass rock sites at Enniskeen and Kinna, Ladies' Well and Fahala, are all situated adjacent to holy wells, and this link not only occurs in County Cork, out in the middle of the Mayo countryside, we find a similar recurrence. There is no doubt that an increase in pilgrimage activity was noticed after the Reformation, and there certainly appears to be an emerging link between the topography of the Holy Well and that of the Mass Rock. According to substantial research by the Brennemans, other than those near a medieval parish church, most wells are either situated in rocky or mountainous areas, all located by the sea often where fresh water is found. The distribution of mass rock sites in the Diocese of Cork and Ross clearly echoes this, with, with a significant number of sites situated near the coast or in rocky regions, such as Cullamane, Gortnamukla, Daniel, Fahala, and many others. I won't go into the names. The Brennemans also surveyed the inaugural sites of the Irish chiefs during their research and found a well, usually now used by Catholics, at or near virtually every one of them, thus providing a distinct link to Ireland's pagan past. With the coming of Christianity, the traditional gatherings of these sacred sites were transmitted into patterns, helping the new religion to gather pace by including the practices of the elder faiths. Indeed, these patterns, with their practice of walking around holy places or wells in a clockwise direction, is universal in Ireland and may go back as far as the Neolithic, with evidence of such activities at Newgrange. We know from research undertaken by Whelan that there was already a, core, already a core area in Cork that had deep roots in the tradition of the area, a product of the hybrid Norman Gaelic world which had developed in Cork in the late medieval period. Throughout this period, wayside shrines were a peculiar feature of medieval piety. Sorry, medieval piety. So outdoor veneration was clearly already well established well before the Reformation. There is a clear continuity in the use of certain landscapes and sacred places. And research undertaken by Cooney shows that some areas that had already become special 
in the prehistoric period were to be the scene of continuing attention in archaeology, history and mythology as people referred back to their past. This is clearly the case with mass rocks. Not only is there a strong link between the sacredness and topography of the mass rock site and that of the holy well, but the patterns established in the pilgrimages to wells are firmly rooted in prehistory. The link is further strengthened by the fact that some mass rock sites are in fact pre-existing monuments from the Neolithic or Bronze Age period. Drombeg Ringfort, Cool Daniel and Tumor Wedge Tombs and Derry Finchin Stone Circle are specific examples of this. And again, this was not peculiar to Cork, as we can see here in County Mayo. So to conclude... We know that outdoor veneration was clearly already well established in the medieval period prior to the Reformation and that Cork was an area that had deep roots in Gaelic tradition. Pilgrimage was also well established in medieval Ireland and increased in intensity after the Reformation. Emphasising the Gaelic tradition, holy wells are found at all the inaugural sites of the Irish chiefs and pilgrimages to holy wells during the Reformation would have included patterns which can be traced back to prehistoric times. The topographical distribution of mass rock sites clearly, clearly mirrors that of holy wells, and we have evidence of mass rock sites placed beside holy wells. Additionally, we have evidence that several prehistoric monuments in Cork have been used as mass rock sites. Lastly, we have historical evidence with the Papal Commission of 1564 and the 1640 synods of both Kilkenny and Armagh, acknowledging the use of outdoor areas for worship during the Reformation. Now, I'm not asserting that all mass rock sites are a feature of the Reformation. I believe that research is beginning to show, however, that some may certainly date to this period. And it is probable, given Cooney's findings, that subsequent Catholic communities returned to these sites during both the Cromwellian period and the Penal Era because they were sacred sites which had served their community well through previous periods of suppression and persecution during the Reformation. <laughs>